Welcome to the podcast, Bringing Truth to Life, where we talk about what the scriptures say that can help you get unstuck from the thorny issues of life and encourage you to live the life you've been wanting to live with Christ. Our speaker today is Henry Clay. We are in a series called Parenting Teens, looking at principles that can guide your thinking as you try to lead and survive your teenagers. May this be helpful to you, and may it also give you truth to share with those you seek to encourage. We're in the second week of grabbing your teenager's heart for Christ, and thank you for uh, diving in and thinking about these things. I, I we're talking about them. I know you've been thinking about them. How many of you have a child now that's taller than you? Okay, we have. I think Wendy is now the shortest in our family of six. You know what? You've shrunk. You used to be a giant and a very intelligent one. And when you have a, a teenager, they don't notice as much that they've grown, but they do notice that you've shrunk and that you're not as smart as you used to be. It is the decade where you will be under uh, greatest scrutiny and greatest criticism in the whole life of your child. Uh, this, is, this is sort of the, if you want to look at it that way, the low point or the, uh, where the deep weeds are in terms of your relationship with your child. It still may go great. I'm just saying that if usually in the, the number of years that you overlap with your child on the earth, in other words, he missed the first 20, 25 years, and you're going to miss his last 20 or 25 years, you overlap for a period of maybe as much as 50 years. And during that 50 years of overlap, this is the fifth of that 50 years that usually is the toughest and uh, where they are not old enough yet to appreciate what you've done for them, but they are old enough to find all of your flaws. Their whole spiritual olfactory sense is heightened and they can smell a fake a mile away and you live a meter away. And so it doesn't matter what it is, whether the way you do standards or what you require of them, what your values are, all these things, they are now able to connect the dots in any place at which, and who doesn't have chinks in the armor, any place at which uh, you're not fully like Jesus Christ, they're going to they're gonna figure it out. Now, it doesn't, matter, it doesn't seem to bother them that they have their flaws because they've always felt that they were flawed. But you used to be perfect. At least they thought you were, and now they've discovered, well, it's just not quite that simple. My father, my mother, is, more, is becoming more of a problem every day. They're a, they're a barrier. They're slow-witted, dim-witted, ancient in their mores and values, not with the times, and they're one of the biggest stumbling blocks that I have in my life. It may or may not be that way, but it's, that's uh, often the way. Uh, at least for moments and sometimes for a decade that uh, children can feel and can think. I want to suggest for you two, two books that are very, very helpful in this decade. But this is called The Disconnected Generation and it's one of the best books I've ever read understanding what's going on with teenagers in, in this decade or 10, 20 years. He wrote it about five years ago. But he talks about how it's not enough to teach your children right from wrong. It's the quality of the relationship you have with them 
but he really gets into what makes the relationship so difficult these days. What's going on in the way the world now teaches children to think that's going to clash in mysterious ways with the way that you've always been taught to think. And your tendency will be to think they're just being bad or rebellious or foolish. And actually, they're, they're, they're living out what the way that the pattern that they've been taught to think. How the world has moved from uh, right and wrong and all that to wh whatever's good for you is right for you. And the major value across the earth should be tolerance. Uh, the world is shifting from a 300-year detour into materialism in the sense that there, there is no supernatural world, there is no God. It's, I believe it's shifting back toward there are lots of things out there and we don't know and we can't know so we shouldn't impose our view on anyone else and we should just be tolerant. And so that's tremendously impacting our young people these days. And this particular book really helps you understand what's the nature of your differences of agreement and gives you some real clear ideas about things you can do about it. You know, it's not a recipe, but it's very helpful. Now, what have you done to uh, educate your children in sexuality? Maybe some of you have tried some things and others of you are still getting ready to do that. I remember hearing a talk by Howard Hendricks talking to a family and he said, how old is your child? And he said, four years old. And he says, well, what are you doing as far as sexual education? And they said, well, we haven't done anything yet. yet. And he says, oh, yes, you have. You've, you've already been doing something for four years. Particularly these days in, in the society we live in, the topic is going to come up. It's going to come up early. It's going to come up wrongly. And the best strategy is you need to learn how to beat the world to the punch because first impressions are the strongest. Now, maybe that you already have done a great job with this, you've gotten some good resources, and you're way down the road, but you're related to a whole extended family that maybe doesn't think that way. And so I wanted to make you aware of a, an excellent resource by Nav Press, the Navigators. It's a graded set of books, four books for age 3 to 5, 5 to 8, 8 to 11, and 11 to 14. So it doesn't dump the truck on a four-year-old. But by the time somebody's 14, it doesn't leave hardly any stone unturned, at least as far as the different kind of questions that can come up. One of the difficulties of talking about sexuality is, is you. You're just uncomfortable talking with them about it. How do you say it? You know, I'll never forget that look on my kid's face when they found out what it really is. And it's like, no, you know, you're <laughs> surely not. It can't be, you know. Say it's not so. And so what's, what's helpful about these books is you don't have to say it, you just read it. It's almost like having a third party come in and talk about it. And the third and the fourth book in particular, this is the third book, it's, it's uh, called What's the Big Deal? Why God Cares About Sex. But what it does is each chapter, it's a conversation between a dad and his son in one chapter, the next chapter will be between a mother and her daughter, and the child comes up with one of these questions, you know, well, my friends at school are talking about this. What is that? Or my, my friend's older sister, it, they say she's going to have a baby, but she's not married. How could that be? So in each one, it's, it's kind of a story. It's a conversation uh, with a, between a parent and a child of the same sex and answering their questions. But since it covers all the different topics, it, uh, it really puts you ahead where you didn't have to figure out what to say. You just read it. And then if they want to talk about it. Now, one of the important things, apart from actually the information that you give, 
What, what happens when you don't communicate first? When the world communicates to them first before you bring up the subject? That communicates to the child, I can't trust my parents to be a source of information. If this is true, then they were withholding this from me, either because it was bad, or they think it's bad, or they think it's something you just don't talk about, so I'm certainly not going to talk to them about it. And so I'm going to have to go elsewhere for my source of information. Or they don't trust me, they don't think I can handle it, so again, I won't talk with them. By bringing up the subject first, even if you don't, you know, give them a manual on it, by you bringing up the subject, you establish it as an official topic of conversation and discussion. You invite uh, future questions. And so then if the world comes in and says stuff, there's much more of a likelihood that afterwards your child can bring up the subject and y'all can talk about it. You have to win the battle of timing. Our tendency is to say, well, oh, they're so young, well, you know, why burden them with this? Well, unfortunately, you happen to have had your child in a fallen world. You know, you should have gone to Mars, but you didn't. So you're here on Earth, and the world is going to bring it up faithfully and early. And so, even if you are able to establish a hedge around your family, most of the other families your child relates to don't. And so even if you don't let your child watch a certain movie, Half the class has seen the movie and is talking about it. What effect does that have on your child? They feel excluded. They, they're embarrassed in front of their friends. They don't feel respected by you. And they don't understand, what, well, since they haven't seen it, why can't I see it? What's the matter with it? And so then their friends tell them all the juicy stuff of the movie. You know, I mean, it just kind of... So because your child intersects with the rest of the world, you're going to have to bring up the subject sooner than you wanted to and sooner probably than otherwise they would have needed it. But it, it preserves your position in their lives as a source of information and trust. Yes? Just one uh, small thing. The way we did it was I read the books with the daughters and Henry read the books with our sons. So this is a four-volume series called God's Design for Sex. Are there any questions thus far? Okay, well, let's, uh, that was just a little side note. I've got, uh, if Wendy would pass out these, this is from last week. We looked at this illustration called the wheel illustration. Bring it up in this context because one of the things you want to influence your child on is their understanding of the Christian life and their involvement with the Lord's people and their growth in Christ. And if your child comes to you and says, well, Dad, Mom, what's the, ba what, you know, what, what is the Christian life? I mean, boil it down for me. Is it just that we go to church? Is that what the Christian life is? And so this is, a, this is a, a simple illustration. I'm sure there are many different kinds of illustrations. This is just one of them, but one I like in particular. Called the wheel illustration that talks about six elements that are essential basic elements of the Christian life for you to be able to evaluate your own life in terms of imbalances and stuff like that, not in a perfect way, and not in a way that if you... If you do all these things that God loves you, He loves you anyway. But in terms of, uh, it's like, if your child only eats popcorn, do you love them any less? No. Will it affect them? Yes. You know, so you're always pushing at least a few vegetables, at least one slice of tomato. I know you don't like any vegetables or anything, but eat something. Why? So that I'll love you more? No, so that you'll be healthy. And these are, the, these are six areas that if a Christian is going to be 
uh, a Christian, a healthy Christian, and cheerful and growing, they're going to need to have Christ in the center, and the Word and prayer, and fellowship and witnessing, and the topic of obedience. Those are the six topics. There are verses under each one. There's a vertical dimension, which is their relationship to God, of, through the Scripture and prayer, and that can come in the youth group, church, in their own private times with the Lord. It can come in a lot of different ways, but these are the elements that need to be there. And in the horizontal the, uh, fellowship, the way they relate to Christians, and witness uh, relating to those that don't know Christ yet. But what I wanted to highlight today on this illustration was, your child can tell to what degree, even if they don't know what words to put it in, they can tell to what degree Christ is in the center of your life. Now, I don't mean to what degree you're religious. They can also tell that, you know. Oh, yes, when uh, we've been up late the night before, but the next day is Sunday, my dad says, but we're going to church anyway. Uh, so, you know, they can tell to what degree you're committed religiously. But they can also tell to what degree you really, your, your Christianity isn't just a form uh, uh, and a ritual that you do, but there's something behind that. There's something more than that. Just in the same way that you, you can be given a gift, and oftentimes you can discern what's behind that gift. Were those flowers that that husband gave to his wife on her anniversary, was it really uh, expressing a deep love that he has for her? Or is it, well, I always give you flowers, so here are your flowers, happy anniversary. You know, you think, well, you know, I mean, who cares about the flowers, really? You know, it was what was behind the flowers and what did it say? I mean, maybe it's saying, oh, you think I'm fat, that's why you didn't give me chocolates. I mean, there might be any number of messages. Uh, same flowers, different message. And your child looks past your religious commitments to see, is there any reality there? Does my mom, does my dad connect with somebody out there that I can't see? Is he real to them? It may or may not yet be real to your child. But they know whether or not that God, whether that Christ is real to you. And so one of the biggest challenges, I think, in, in parenting teenagers is you've got to be a better dad. You've got to be a better mom. Just pulling rank isn't going to do it anymore. Well, do it because I said so. Or do it because I'm your mom or I'm your dad. Well, that loses strength every day. And one of the ways that you influence them, but not in a coercive way, is you live before them a better and better example. And it could be that God will allow greater challenges with your children because He's trying to get you, get your attention. That if everything was going fine with your teenagers, you'd just keep going right on with your life just like it is with maybe almost never reading the Scripture, not curious really about growing and learning more about God, almost not praying, but because of these, these trials, difficulties, mysteries, puzzles, conflicts, wars, crashes, all these horrible things, Lord, help! You know, I, I can tell I can't do this and I need help. Is God's first thing on the agenda in you parenting a teenager is that you be a better Christian? Because that's the best, that's the strongest thing he has in your teenager's life. No man has seen God at any time. Your teenager's never seen God. Never seen Jesus Christ. But he watches you. And he figures you're the expert. And if that's how you live, maybe that's the way it is. And a lot of times they're not impressed. 
Now, I know there are differences of opinion on different issues and stuff, but, but they also look beyond that and sense beyond that. But is there any reality? Are at least my parents convinced that it's true? Because if it's just religion, most kids are pretty bored with religion. I certainly was. I was raised faithfully going to church, reluctantly going to church. When I was 15, I decided... I don't really want to do this anymore. Sundays is often a sunny day, and everybody seems miserable in the church I go to. Dutifully, but miserable. And it's like uh, detention or something, or, or study hall or something. And, and I thought, well, I'm just not going to go anymore. And I told my dad that. And that's when I found out church attendance was obligatory in our house. I didn't realize up until that point, until I tried to go another direction, you cannot go in that direction. And when I was 17, I went off to a military boarding school in Alabama. And I went off to this military boarding school, and I thought, one of the great advantages and blessings of going off to this boarding school is I won't have to go to church anymore. Until I found out that, to my horror, at the military school, it was still required. Full dress uniform, shine, buttons, polished shoes, march to church through town. With whichever so other guys that were going to your church, y'all marched marched together through the town. You know, fortunately it was a small town, but uh, someone at that point invited me to a youth group, and which I didn't want to go to, but the guy was kind of nice, and and I thought, well, I'll I'll go once. I know I won't like it. How awful! You know, it's bad enough having to go once on Sundays, and then to have to go with the some miserable youth somewhere at some activity that nobody wishes they were at. But on a Wednesday night in October 1971, I went to the minister's house in his living room, and there were about 30 young people there singing uh, with a joy I'd never seen before. And they had like a half an hour singing, half an hour Bible study, and then they split us up into groups and said, uh, this group in the bedroom, this group in the kitchen, this group stays here, sent us all over their little house to do, what did I know? I mean, uh, the first time I'd ever done anything religious that wasn't in a religious building. And uh, I found myself around the kitchen table with about eight people, and they, we all held hands. I thought, okay, closed their eyes, and then one of them prayed. I said, oh, okay, I got it. They're praying. And then the next one prayed, and the next one prayed. And to my horror, I realized it was coming my way, you know. <laughs> and uh, I was a, of a wonderful Anglican tradition that is terribly uncreative, and, uh, but not really knows how to read a good prayer out of a book. And uh, I had no book. And uh, so I rapidly scrambled to paste together every single sort of a phrase I could think of that you might could address to the deity. And it got to me, and I gave it all, last about 20 seconds, and I'm sure I sweat through everything I had on. And then the next one prayed, and the next one prayed, and the next one, I thought, oh no, it's coming around again. <laughs> I gave him everything I had the first time. But I walked away from that meeting that night thinking, were they drinking? Were they stoned? How, how could they have been so happy about a topic that I find so boring? So I went back the next week and the next week. By about the third week, during the time of the singing, I looked up at the ceiling where you figure God hovers. And I said, God, I don't know if you're there. But if you are, I'd really like to know you. And that's where I took my leap from religion over to, is there somebody there? Is there somebody there in your life? Are you seeking a person? 
Are you finding him? Are you growing? Or are you just an automatic pilot? There's nothing beyond that that I can tell you that can take the place of that in your life and for the welfare of your children. That is what you're trying to pass on to the next generation. The reality of a personal relationship with God. And we all struggle with it. I know very, I've met very few people that feel like God talks to them in a way that they know that's, you know, they always know that's God. I mean, I've heard some people have that experience. That seems to be less frequent in Presbyterian circles, but, you know, we have uh, the Word of God. God is real, and He speaks to us in different ways. But most of us uh, don't necessarily always feel that close to Him. But He says, if you seek me, you will find me if you search for me with all of your heart. And that's one of the greatest gifts you could ever give to your child is that you would begin in a new way, a deeper way, a more consecrated way to seek God first for your own life because you become contagious with that, with that faith. There's plenty out there to help you. What's lacking, if there's anything lacking, it's only your desire and your decision. Say, I will arise and go to Jesus. I'm going to find out who knows him better. I'm going to get with them, ask them what did they do, what has helped them. I'll ask them to pray for me. Uh, faith is a contagious thing. There, there are books to read, there are tapes to listen to. There's plenty in America, there's plenty to help you. But nothing can help you until you decide this is for me and this is for now. And even if I wouldn't do it before for myself, I'll at least do it now for my children. Now, let's just suppose you are seeking the Lord, you're excited about your faith, you've been growing, and so you feel like, well, Henry, about two years ago, God already began me on that adventure of knowing Christ and I, you know, you're never perfect, but I, I really I really sense I'm progressing and I'm, I'm encouraged about it. Let's just suppose your child comes up to you one day and they probably won't, but it might come up in a, in a subtle way, if not in a direct way. And they ask you, really, mom, dad, what's Christianity about? I mean, what, what, what is the basic, I hear this term gospel. Gospel songs, gospel churches, share the gospel. What is it? Do you have a simple answer to that question? I asked uh, a church member this, this past week. And uh, we were just uh, eating lunch together. And I know this is a, a dear Christian and has really gotten going in the last, I don't know, four or five years in his faith. And he's got two teenagers. But he really didn't have a very clear answer for that. Now that means you don't have to be able to explain how a car works to drive a car. I'm not saying that you have to be able to get up in front of people and explain in detail all of how salvation works. Uh, we come to him as a little child and, and people are at different points of where they understand it. And like I said, you can drive a car with uh, relatively little information about internal combustion. But when you want to communicate that to somebody else, you have to have it clearer in your own mind. As someone once said, a mist in the pulpit is a fog in the pew. 
If you don't even have an answer, how do you expect them to get it? And so one of the things also as a parent you want to get real clear on is, what is the basic message of Christianity? I ought to have a decent answer to that. Now some of you may have seen the, uh, so we've got an answer now to work with on how to answer the question, what's the Christian life? What, if, what do Christians do? What are the important elements of, Christ, of, uh, of following Christ? And the other question I want you to be able to answer is, what is the basic message of Christianity? Is it just be nice and go to church? Is it not go see R-rated movies? Is that, the, is that the gospel? In fact, let me ask, how many have seen the bridge illustration? But the basic message of Christianity is that, is that God originally created man and woman in his own image, mankind in his own image. And there was a, a relationship and a communication that when man and woman sinned against God and went decided to go their own way, that sin broke the fellowship and the relationship with God. Isaiah 59.2 says, But your sins have made a separation between you and your God, and they've hidden his face from you so that he might not hear. And everyone here knows that sin breaks fellowship. It's caused grief in your marriage when one has offended the other, made a promise they didn't keep, or done something they shouldn't have done, or lied, etc. And it's also bro sin has broken fellowship time and again between you and your child. And they've rebelled against you, or uh, disobeyed you, or done something they shouldn't have done, or failed to do what they should have done, or you've made a promise and you haven't kept it, and so they're upset with you. Sin breaks fellowship. And that's resulted in a break between God and man that we'll represent with this chasm here. And so that mankind doesn't feel close to God. I mean, haven't you talked to people that says, well, I've never seen God. How, how am I supposed to know he's there? He's never talked to me. As far as I know, he doesn't exist. Man is born with his back to God, rebelling against God, moving away from God, when they're real little, I mean, obviously, if that's the motion, when they're born, they may be the closest to God they'll be for the rest of their lives. Because there's a ton of stuff they haven't figured out how to do yet. Their inclination of their heart is toward evil a lot of the times, just like yours is. They haven't done it yet. And so that's why I think little kids look so innocent sometimes. I mean, they're not, but... He's not going to find a, 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 you know, you may find a five-year-old murderer, but you're not going to find a six-month-old murderer. I mean, he can't even pick up a gun, you know. So, and the Bible talks about three principles or three factors that characterize man and, and woman in this in this condition. One is that all have sinned. We're all in the same boat. The world isn't divided up between white height, white hats and black hats. There are the people that go to jail, and then the rest of us that are good people. The Bible says that we, none of us has lived a perfect life. We've all sinned in different ways against Almighty God and against one another. Uh, we're not as bad as we could have been, but we're not as good as we should have been. And the Bible says in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. The result of being sinners and sinning is death forever. Another term for that is hell. It's an eternal separation from a holy God. And the third thing it says is, is that every once in a while, uh, it'll get to us. And we realize, I bet God's mad at me. Uh, in fact, I'm mad at me too. And so I need to turn over a new leaf. I need to do something about this distance. I need to start going to church. I need to maybe get a Bible and start reading it. I need to go volunteer at the soup kitchen. Ephesians 2 and 9, it says that our works can't save, can't remedy our situation. 
It doesn't matter how faithful you are in church attendance. It doesn't matter if you give 50% of your income to chapter 3. It's just not going to be enough to get you across that chasm that separates you and God because good works never cancel out bad works. It, you, I used to think God would put my good works and bad works in a beam balance and, and if my good weighed more than my bad, then I'd go to heaven. Have you ever heard that thought? Have you ever thought that thought? Now, what if somebody has murdered five people and he stands before the judge and he says, but judge, that was 20 years ago and you don't know how good I've been in the last 20 years. I have helped so many people. I studied medicine. I have saved 100 people's lives from terrible sicknesses and stuff. And so I've, since I've saved 100 lives, that should cancel out the, just the 20 people I murdered. That's not justice, is it? You were already supposed to be good. And your judgment is only related to the things that you did wrong. So our good works can never overcome our bad works. And the gospel is, is that even with this, all of this bad news, this is the bad news, if you don't understand the bad news, then you don't understand what is God's good news. The good news is, is that God found a way anyway to redeem us by making a bridge through His Son, Jesus Christ. And it says that Christ paid the penalty for our sins. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also died for sins once for all. The just, He was just, for the unjust in order that he might bring us to God. Who's doing the bringing? He is. In order that he might bring us to God as we put our faith in him. The Bible says that it's not an automatic thing. It's not now that since Christ died 2,000 years ago and made a bridge that there's a, some sort of a trampoline over here and as soon as you're born, you're bounced over to the other side. There does need to be a, a, an appropriate response in of our own hearts. The Bible talks about us needing to receive, believe and receive Christ into our hearts that we only, it only occurs to us to do because God is already doing the prior work in the heart of those he's chosen. But we need to respond in faith and receive Christ in our hearts. And the last point is that we can have assurance of our salvation. Now, I've just gone over the table of contents here. And next time I'll give you a sheet of paper because this really isn't our topic. But all this to say, where are you? Where are you on this diagram? Where would you put yourself, your own little stick figure? Are you still on man's side? Do you feel like you're on the way? Are you over here? Where are you with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Not with just church attendance or behaving yourself. That We're delighted you do those things to the degree you do them. Uh, but it's never enough. Only Christ can be our salvation. And so to grow in your own clarity in that. Because if you can't, pass, if you can't communicate that to somebody else, then you have a kind of a slippery understanding of it yourself. And like I said, the best thing you can do for your child is that you finish becoming a solid believer in Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, how can we hope for our children to come to faith in Christ and to love you and live for you if we won't? If we're satisfied with so little, with such a shaky view, with so little progress even after so many years. Please forgive us, Lord. Forgive us for failing you, for failing our children. Thank you for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that uh, it's not as though uh, we're hopeless by any means. In fact, as you bring these topics up, as you reawaken in us the need to arise and seek God, uh, that you relight a fire in our hearts 
And we ask you to do a wonderful thing in the decade as we parent teenagers, that at least uh, we would finish being parented ourselves uh, in the things that we need for this decade. Help us, Lord, to grow in our depth, in our sincerity, in our curiosity. And bless each one of these families, Lord, uh, as they're already interested enough, concerned enough for their children to be here this hour. I know that that so pleases you, uh, their humility, their desire to learn. And I just pray that these seeds would fall into a fertile heart and germinate and bear much fruit. Even though for a while it doesn't look like anything's happening, Lord, you are at work. You have never yet forsaken the soul that cries out to you in true faith. Thank you, Lord. Bless each one now, and thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us on Bringing Truth to Life. If the message has encouraged you, please subscribe and give us a review. This helps more people find our podcast. We hope you'll join us again for the next podcast of Bringing Truth to Life.